Good morning. My name is Josiah Gorder. I'm a church planter uh, from Sacramento. Enjoyed the beautiful drive down here this morning. Uh, normally, my wife comes with me uh, on things like this. Her name is Genevieve. Uh, but she's at home now because we just had our first baby about six weeks ago. Uh, so she's at home taking care of our son, Nolan. And uh, if you want to see a picture of a really, really cute baby, come find me afterwards. And I would be really happy to show you. If you would please turn with me for our reading this morning, it comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. So you can be found on your screen or in the Bibles in front of you on page 1054. This is God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Jesus, our Savior, we see that you can make miraculous transformations happen. In our gathering this morning, may we see that transformation take place in our heart. That you would transform our minds and our hearts to be more and more like yours. That we could leave this place more and more like you than when we came in. Be with us this moment, Spirit. Open our hearts and our minds to hear your word. Amen. I don't know if you've ever seen these lists online of life hacks. I always think they're really interesting. It's when you take something that was designed for one thing, and then you give it a new purpose. Uh, some of my favorites are, uh, if you don't have a speaker, you can play some music on your phone, and you can put it in a bowl, and then the bowl acts as an amplifier, making the music louder. You know, you take something, a bowl, that's designed for, you know, eating cereal or soup, and then you turn it into a mini speaker. I think these things are really interesting. Or um, I read where you can use a, a contact case, you know, this thing designed to keep your contact lenses hydrated, as a little uh, pill carrying case for when you're traveling. So you don't have to take the whole big bottle with you. You can just take this little contact case. What you're doing is you're using something that was designed for one purpose and transforming it, using it for something else. That's a little bit like what we see Jesus doing in the story that we read today. Jesus is taking these six stone water jars, which were used for the traditional cleansing rituals of Jewish purification, 
and he's giving them a new purpose. He's now transformed these stone water jars into a sign of what his kingdom is going to be like. A sign of his kingdom that looks like a feast, where there's more than enough good wine to go around. And so this morning, during our time together, I want us to look at what was behind this ritual, this cleansing ritual. I want to see what Jesus did uh, with them was so much more than just bailing out uh, a poor bridegroom from throwing a bad party. And then finally, to see how the transformation that Jesus did at this wedding ends up setting up his ultimate transformation that affects you and me. And so to begin with, let's look at what was behind this ritual of cleansing that these six stone water jars were used for. I don't know if you've heard the phrase that uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, in Jesus' time and in that culture, cleanliness was a required part of godliness. You could not be godly unless you were participating in these traditional religious rituals of cleansing. There are all sorts of laws and customs that you can read about in the Bible for how to keep things clean. It was very important to keep your food clean to keep your body clean, to keep your clothes clean. There are laws and customs about how to keep your home clean. And these stone jars that were there, they held the water that was used for cleaning the body. This ritual that was done in Jesus' time. And they were massive. You know, each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons. So big jars, and they're made out of stone. So can you imagine how heavy that would be? And they used stone jars for a reason. They wouldn't use clay jars, even though they're much lighter, because clay was much more susceptible to corruption or corrosion. Stone was considered cleaner, and so it would keep the water cleaner. This is how fixated this culture was on cleanliness, that they would give up, you know, lighter jars for these massive, heavy stone ones, just to keep the water a little bit cleaner. Now, what we see happening uh, in this, this ritual cleansing is a cycle is begun. When you become dirty, you need to clean yourself. There were all of these cycles that were going on in Jesus' culture. The same thing was happening in the temple. That when, when you were, let's see, when your body gets dirty, you clean yourself. There was also a ritual of sacrifice. That when you sin, you offer a sacrifice. You get dirty, you clean yourself up. You sin, you offer a sacrifice to clean yourself up. And you see this cycle going on and on again. Because any of us, if you've ever taken a bath or taken a shower, you know that there is a, 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 a limit to how long the effects of that last. Maybe you've smelled someone who has outlived the limit of their last shower or bath. We see this uh, cycle that takes place inside of these rituals. And now cleanliness, cleanliness is a good thing. But uh, in Jesus' time, it was sometimes elevated to the ultimate thing. It was something that was uh, considered the ultimate arbiter of whether you were a good person or not, was whether you were following these laws. And we see Jesus have this really interesting exchange with the Pharisees during his day. The Pharisees, the folks who were the most focused and concentrated on maintaining all of these laws and rituals, and who were looking around and making sure that everybody else was obeying these laws and these rituals. And Jesus has this interesting exchange with them regarding the cleanliness laws of the day. Jesus says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside 
They are full of greed and indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Back then, they were so concerned with laws uh, concerning the outside of their bodies that they missed the mess that was going on in their own hearts. The Pharisees of that day were so fixated on making sure everybody was obeying these good laws, cleanliness, you know, being clean is a good thing, but they were so fixated on it that they'd elevated it to this ultimate level where it had done something inside of them, that it had turned them into judgmental, guilt-driving people to ensure that everyone else was following these laws and these rituals. And the sad thing is that no good thing is beyond the risk of Phariseeism. You know, cleanliness, it's a good thing, but when it gets elevated to the ultimate thing, it gets blown out of proportion. It does damage to the people around you by heaping guilt on them, and it does damage inside you as well by making your heart something more judgmental. This is what happens when you take an outside-in approach to being right with God, to being justified, when you're just focusing on the outside that you're ignoring the inside. Any good cause that gets elevated into the ultimate measure of who is clean or pure or who is unclean or impure only blinds us to the hypocritical judgment going on in our own heart. Now, there's a few examples of how this might play out. I remember when I was growing up, uh, in my teenage years especially, uh, a good cause was taken and made an ultimate cause. Uh, it was this, this culture of sexual purity. Now, saving sex for marriage is a really, really good thing. It's a really good thing. Marriage is important. Sex is a tremendous gift that ought to be valued and treated right. But when that becomes the ultimate measure of who is good and who is bad, who is clean and who is unclean, it gets out of whack. It turns the heart into something judgmental instead of something loving. This is an outside-in approach to being right with God. If, if your sexual history is the ultimate arbiter of whether you are right with God or not, uh, this is a clear case of things getting out of whack, of Phariseeism, of, of judgmentalism taking over the heart and hurting the people around you. Or maybe a more modern example uh, would be some COVID regulations. You know, uh, public health is a really, really good thing. But when uh, it becomes the ultimate thing, it can become destructive. You know, when, when people start saying, you know, you're clean or you're unclean based on your vaccination status or whether you're wearing masks or doing this, if this becomes the ultimate thing, it gets out of whack. It turns the heart into something judgmental instead of something loving and caring. This is what happens when you take an outside-in approach. When it's about following the laws, when it's about doing the rituals, when it's about making sure that the external things are cleaned and that everything is marked in line. It's the exact opposite of the hymn that we read this morning, not what my hands have done. An outside-in approach says, it is what my hands have done. My ability to follow these clean laws, my ability to follow these regulations, my ability to do this or to abstain from that. Now, all of these are approaches are concerned with becoming clean from the outside in. Just like the rituals that use those six stone water jars at the wedding. But when Jesus transforms the water into wine, he's showing us that in God's kingdom, you are made clean from the inside out. 
It's not an outside-in approach. It's an inside-out approach that makes us right with God. Now, for example, look, the, uh, the water in those jars, they could do a good job of cleaning the outside of your body. But if you were to bring that into your body, if you were to drink that water, it would make you sick. There's even a, 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 <laughs> a verse in the Bible where Paul is writing to Timothy. And he says to him, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now, the water back then didn't go through any of the purification processes that our water goes through, you know, when we take it out of the tap. Back then, wine was much, much healthier than water. Because back then, the water had this disease causing bacteria in it. And the alcohol in wine would kill that disease causing bacteria. Now, when I did a lesson on this uh, for my youth group, they all said, oh, so we can drink wine? Is that what you're saying? And no, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, especially because the wine back then wasn't nearly as strong as the you know, big, burly California Cabernets that we've got going on today. It was a little bit less, it was a little bit more watered down, but it was enough to kill the disease-causing bacteria that thrived in the water that would make you sick. So literally, by drinking wine instead of water, you would be cleaning your gut from the inside out. You would be introducing something that kills disease-causing bacteria into your body. So when Jesus turns this water into wine, he's showing that it's not about washing the outside. It's about being changed from the inside out by drinking something that cleans you from the inside out. And not only uh, does it clean you from the inside out, but it tastes much better. Water literally tastes like nothing. Wine, good wine, uh, and it seems like this was good wine, you know, according to the master of the banquet. It tastes good. It's rich. It's complex. It's, it, it makes you happy. This is a symbol for the world that Jesus is trying to make, that he's come to introduce to us. It's not about uh, cleaning the outside. It's, it's, it's about celebrating from the inside out. And, and, it's, and it's not just doled out in small amounts. You know, if you've ever been wine tasting, sometimes they'll just pour you this little teeny tiny sip, and that's all that you get. But with Jesus, he transforms over 120, 130 gallons of water into wine. This is way more wine than what was needed. Nobody was going to, uh, to have an empty glass. Nobody was going to be left wanting more. In God's kingdom, he gives us more and more and more than what we could ever want or need. We are never left uh, wanting more. It's a feast. This wedding dinner is a feast, and that's an image that Jesus uses again and again to describe the kind of kingdom that he's come to bring. I find it really ironic that uh, Jesus uses an excessive amount of wine to give us a sober view of what his kingdom is going to be like. A very sober view, a very clear and, and, and crisp picture of what God's kingdom is going to be like. But this wedding, this miracle that Jesus does here, it's not an isolated incident. This isn't Jesus just looking at what's going on and saying like, eh, poor sucker, all right, I'll bail him out. I'll turn this water into wine so he doesn't get embarrassed. And there's much more going on than this. This is a watershed moment in Jesus's ministry. Notice how when Mary, Jesus' mother, says to him, you know, he's trying to, she's trying to get him to do something here. His response is that my hour has not yet come. And what is he talking about? 
That's a theme that comes up again and again throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus is talking about his hour. It's clear that his ministry is going somewhere, that Jesus has a mission. He's got an end in sight. And he knows that once he starts revealing who he is by doing these miraculous signs, he's putting himself on a one-way street. He's putting himself in a place, it's a point of no return. It starts a process that will not end well for him. This is the first sign that he gives of who he is. Jesus demonstrates that he is God with us. And he's come to remake the world into something new. And, and if you notice too, the last line of what we read today, is that the disciples believed in him. This is the first time when the disciples notice who Jesus is and they put their faith in him. They're starting to see that he's more than just another teacher, that he's done this miraculous thing. He's starting to reveal his glory. He's starting to reveal his power. He's starting to reveal that he is God amongst men. And as he does more of this revealing through his teachings, through his healings, through his other miraculous signs, opposition increases to what he's doing. And, and honestly, like, you can kind of understand why. We saw how he spoke to the Pharisees. These were the folks who were in charge of things as they were. And Jesus comes to start something new. And when he speaks to them so uh, brashly, well, it, it makes a little bit of sense that they would have this resistance to him. And so as Jesus begins to reveal more and more of who he is, more and more of his glory, opposition increases until finally the ruling class the people who are in charge of the status quo and keeping things the way that they are have had enough they take him they put him in a mock trial they uh, exhibit mob justice on him they don't like what jesus has come to do so what they do is they put a crown of thorns on him they beat him they drag him outside the city nail him to a cross mockingly offer him wine vinegar, you know, wine that has gone sour, and leave him up there to die. This was Jesus' hour. This is where his ministry was going. It was going to the cross. And so, at the wedding of Cana, when Jesus is talking about his hour, when he does this miraculous transformation, when Jesus raised his glass at the wedding feast, he was actually toasting his own death but we see something happen. We see another transformation take place three days after Jesus' death. After his followers took his body down and put it in a borrowed grave, three days later, we see a new transformation. Walk out of that tomb. We see a resurrected Jesus, a Jesus whose, whose body has been transformed, just like water to wine, this new body that he walks out with is as different from yours and mine as wine is from water. We see Jesus initiating a number of transformations at this point. He, he transforms death into new life. He transforms the cross from a symbol of pain and suffering and fear into a symbol of hope, to a symbol of peace, a symbol of love that we still hold on to dearly today. And maybe... <laughs> The ultimate transformation that Jesus completes is the transformation of his sacrifice into our salvation. Maybe the best way to explain this transformation of his sacrifice transformed into our salvation is to look again at the story 
of what happened at the wedding of Cana. What we see is this bridegroom made a huge error in not having enough wine for his guests. He didn't plan this out well enough. He made a big mistake, and there were going to be severe consequences for it. But Jesus intervenes. He turns the water into wine, and he saves the party. And then, then what happens? The master of the banquet commends the bridegroom, <laughs> the man who made the mistake. You know, I imagine him putting his arm around the bridegroom and being like, oh, yeah, this is such a great wedding. You know, everybody usually starts out with the good wine, and then once everybody's had too much, and they get a little tipsy, and they can't tell the difference, then you bring in the cheap wine. But you, you have saved the best until now. You know, the master of the banquet commends the bridegroom for the miracle that Jesus did. Jesus saved the party, but the bridegroom gets the credit, even though he was the one who almost ruined it. And this is the gospel in a nutshell, that even though we are the ones whose pride and judgment uh, and our sin in our hearts have caused so much damage in the world around us, you know, even though we are the ones who have made the mistake, who've, who've ruined the party, Jesus takes humanity into himself, transforms it into something righteous, and then gives us the credit. Jesus gives us the credit for his perfectly loving and righteous life so that we are commended before God the Father. That God the Father could put his arm around us and say, wow, what an amazing job you've done even though it was Christ who's done the miraculous transformation. This is the gospel that changes us from the inside out. That it's not something about maintaining all of the laws and rituals that you need to work and make sure that you follow all of these things exactly right, and that's how you get right with God. No, it's a, it's a gospel that we drink in, something that is sweet, something that is delicious, a gospel that, that Jesus' life and his righteousness are given to you freely, Take it in. Enjoy it. Drink it into your gut and let it kill the disease-causing sin and bacteria that lives in there. Be cleaned from the inside out. It also means that if you understand this gospel, this grace that's given to you freely, this gift of Christ's righteousness given to you, although you did not earn it, though he did the work, you get the recommendation, you get the, the uh, approval from God the Father. It means that if you understand what this gospel means, that you take on a new attitude in life. It means that you take on the same attitude of the servants in the story. These servants, they go to Mary, and what does she say to, the, to them? She says to them, do whatever he tells you. This is the attitude that the Christian takes in life. We look at Jesus, and we do whatever he tells us. We take on this attitude of grateful obedience to the words of Christ, and we enjoy the party. And we are sent out to invite others to this wedding feast, to, to drink from the six stone water jars that are not going to run out. There's more than enough of God's grace to go around. There are empty seats at the festival. There are empty seats around the banquet table that we get to go out and invite people who, who are hungry and thirsty, folks who have been drinking water their entire lives, to come in, sit, have a seat at the table, drink some of this, this great wine that Jesus provides for you, have some of this food that is laid out for you, 
Enjoy it, even though you don't deserve to be here, even though I don't deserve to be here. There's a seat for you. Come, sit, eat, and enjoy this miraculous transformation that Jesus gives to you freely. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much for the incredible transformation, transformations that you have done. We see them in your, the miracles that you've done that we read about in scripture, but we also see the amazing transformation that you do in the heart of each and every one of your followers. Transforming us from people who used to live outside in lives, from people who used to be uh, terrified and, and worried about making sure we were following every single thing right to people who can now live inside out lives because of the grace that you've given to us that has transformed us from the inside out. God, may we be filled with joy at the fact that we are invited to feast with you where there is plenty of good food and drink to go around. God, we also ask that you would make our hearts compassionate to those who are outside the feast, to those who do not know that they are invited, to those who do not know that they don't need to clean themselves up first before coming in, but that they can come in as they are, eat and drink and be changed by the feast that you offer to all of us. In your name we pray. Amen.